The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Eleanor Lace, reporter for Market Watch, and I'm pleased today to welcome Seth Leonard. He's Managing Director of Community Development at the Vermont Housing Finance Agency. Seth, thanks so much for joining me today. Pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me. Today, we're talking about the housing shortage. What caused it? How bad is it? And most importantly, what are some potential solutions? MarketWatch recently analyzed five years worth of monthly housing inventory data, county by county, nationwide, in major markets like Las Vegas, Raleigh, North Carolina, and El Paso, Texas. We found that the number of homes listed for sale had dropped 70 to 80% over the past five years. But in small town America, we found that the situation was even more extreme. In a number of more rural counties, housing inventory dropped more than 80% in the last five years. And no region was harder hit than New England. In Vermont, three counties saw the number of homes listed for sale drop more than 80% over the five-year period. Of course, there are a lot of moving parts here. Mortgage rates are rising. Demand is starting to cool off. Looking at the May data from Realtor.com, inventory nationwide has rebounded a bit, but there are still only half as many homes available as in the early days of the pandemic. And many, many buyers are struggling to find homes they can afford. Vermont has been wrestling with a statewide housing shortage for years now. And folks there have tried out a number of potential solutions that we'll talk about today. Seth can give us some great perspective on that. His organization, the Vermont Housing Finance Agency, is focused on financing and promoting safe and affordable housing for low and moderate income Vermonters. So Seth, going back to pre-pandemic times, what were the biggest factors contributing to the housing shortage in Vermont? Sure. So Vermont's got a long history, and I like to say that we really didn't get here um, by accident and where we are in terms of our housing shortage crisis. Um, in 2019, we completed an affordable housing cost study, and we had asked the question, why aren't we producing more homes or how could we produce more homes with the available federal and state resources we do have to support housing construction? And um, the key factors that study found that were driving up costs, so limit, the, limiting the amount of resources or the effectiveness of those resources, uh, were, were related to land use regulation and permitting processes. So we understood that we had a problem there. And when you look a little bit further back, a lot of Vermont's land use regulations um, and local permitting uh, measures were designed in the 1970s, when just more broadly, the nation was having a big discussion about growth and this idea of abundance. Um, and communities were really called to action to try to preserve what at the time was termed as their residential character 
uh, and in Vermont's case, a really strong commitment to an, an agricultural atmosphere and a high level of respect for environmental um, assets. Um, so um, after that zoning was all passed and put into place in the 1970s, by the time 1980 to 1990 rolled around, we were still behind the rest of the country, only increasing our housing stock by about 1.81% uh, per year. The rest of the country during that time was seeing 6% and above increase in the number of net units available um, and being added to the inventory each and every year. And by the time 2000 rolled around, um, between 2000 and 2010, we were at 0.66%. And from 2010 to 2020, we were actually at 0.66% so, or 0.60%. So we reached almost virtual stagnation prior to the pandemic even coming, right? Um, and a lot of um, what we would point to as, as the driving factor to that is when you've got restrictive land use regulations, when you've got permitting processes that are unpredictable, builders and developers tailor their pipeline accordingly. Um, and it drives up costs to the point where you're going to limit the number of units that you can produce. So I, I'll say that we came there somewhat intentionally through regulation and unfortunately, but it's a, it is an issue that we were dealing with prior to the pandemic. And we've also in Northern New England experienced higher costs of development historically as a factor largely in our access to materials and labor, which both were exacerbated by the pandemic. So then along comes the pandemic and like so many places across the country, uh, Vermont had even more pressures on its housing supply during the COVID crisis. Um, can you talk about what you've seen over the past two years or so? Yeah. Well, uh, the bottom line is 20% um, increase in construction costs. And um, that 20% that we're quoting right now is what we've seen in the difference in construction costs over the last two years. I just want to highlight that that's actually benchmarked to what we're seeing for current bids. Um, that we actually expect the final cost of construction during this period is going to play out to be even higher than that 20% increase that we've seen. And if you look at the attributable factors, we conducted a survey um, late last year to ask developers, what's driving this? And they said, yes, we've got this historic issues with land use regulatory issues and permitting processes that are delaying our timelines and making um, developments complicated, sometimes overlapping approvals needed between state and local entities. But a large part of it is the fact that Vermont between December 2019 and, and December 2021 had 32,000 people disappear from the labor force. So there were, simply weren't enough workers there um, to perform some of the projects and it, it continued to increase labor costs. And then again, accessibility to materials. And it's not just being able to, for example, get a door, right? Um, it's you you uh, cost and plan a project with certain types of materials. In a lot of cases, those lower price or medium price materials weren't available. So builders ended up having to move into higher price materials. And that just further pushed up cost um, in each development that we saw. So um, we saw a measurable impact to those costs um, and we think it's gonna be even higher next year. And at the same time, Vermont attracted waves of uh, new residents during the pandemic, lots of people with newly flexible remote work arrangements. And a lot of people I've spoken to in Vermont are wondering whether those people are going to stick around. Is that adding to the uncertainty for home builders now? Yeah, sure. I was struck. I was just watching um, uh, a video that was made during Vermont's bicentennial in 1976. Um, 
where they interviewed, where do you think Vermont's going to be 50 years from now? And the overwhelming response from people was, there are going to be houses everywhere. We're going to be very densely built. Our agricultural farms are going to be gone. Um, and a lot of that was attributable, attributable in their minds to people coming in, purchasing, building, constructing second homes. We have a long history as a state of being a second home state. We have the highest or the second highest uh, percentage, depending on which statistics you look at, of second homes um, in the country. Um, and what that means is there's a lot of people from outside the state with their eye on Vermont as a, a beautiful place to be, which we appreciate. Um, and when the pandemic arose and the opportunity to work remotely popped up, we saw some of those um, second homes get occupied more permanently. But we also saw people who had a long legacy of vacationing here, a desire to move here. Uh, we saw out-of-state home purchases increase by about 38%. So that's a pretty big spike in terms of the number of purchasers coming in from out-of-state. And that also put additional pressure on a lot of local um, potential purchasers, right? Um, there was a higher, uh, higher income associated in a lot of cases with an out-of-state purchaser um, that sometimes squeezed the market tighter for those uh, within the state that had been looking to purchase. We also saw a median increase in price in some unexpected places. Vermont has 645,000 people and about 25% of our populations uh, in one county, Chittenden County, that's on the, on the banks of beautiful Lake Champlain. And um, what we saw throughout the pandemic is typically we would see a pretty steady increase in prices that's indicative of the market in that Chittenden County area, right? That larger housing market. We saw markets across the state have some really interesting spikes and sustained spikes over the couple year period, which demonstrated to us that people were willing to move to some of those more um, rural communities in a lot of cases. Um, we are also the second oldest, second widest, second most rural state um, in the country. And we really grapple with that. And our, the median age of our housing stock is 1974, um, which is also um, the second oldest in the country. So we're number two in a, a number of things that maybe aren't um, desirable. So I don't want to make it sound like Vermont's not inviting from the outside. We very much want to be. Um, I think the bigger note that that 38% increase um, says is that we didn't have enough stock here for the market to absorb that fluctuation, right? For that, for the increase to be absorbed in our natural housing stock. That's what's maybe most, I'll say, disappointing about that and the impact that it's probably had on price pressures. I just want to remind folks who are joining us live, if you have questions for Seth, please go ahead and submit those now. Um, so Seth, as you mentioned, Vermont is a huge uh, vacation home state in terms of the number of vacation homes per capita. What about short-term rentals like Airbnb? What kind of role do they play here? And are they really exacerbating the housing shortage, do you think? Yeah. My answer to that would be in certain communities, they are. But as an overall statewide policy, and there's a uh, article that's circulating quite a bit right now about short-term rental ownership in Vermont from a couple that um, made a lot of money off of short-term rentals in Vermont. Um, but short-term rentals account in total for about 2.5% of our total housing stock in the state. Um, and units that are regularly rented, right, that we think are actual short-term rentals from a targeted, that's all they do, is about 1.4%. 
um, of our of our total housing stock. Um, so while that can be really impactful when you think about a ski resorts, um, local access to housing, and um, individual communities where there's not a lot of available rental housing, that can have a squeeze and an impact. But from a big picture, I think that's an important number to keep in mind that 2.5% of all units get rented at some point short-term rentals during the course of the year, and 1.4% we think are uh, more, more permanent. And um, I can't say that without saying 17% of our total um, housing units in Vermont homes are um, second homes and seasonal homes. And again, that comes from a long history. Vermont used to actually promote that as a being a place of vacation homes and hobby farms. Uh, so we've got a long history of that. Um, I think the more important number to take away from all of that is when we look at the units that are available for permanent rentals or for permanent occupancy, we have a 2.4% vacancy rate, um, which just indicates it's an extremely tight housing market. So yes, STR, short-term rentals, if that number went down a little bit and could help with the vacancy rates, that would be great. But we have a much bigger problem um, than just short-term rentals, right? When your vacancy rate's 2.4% versus what might be considered healthy of around 4 to 8%. And I think naturally or nationally is around 5.6% in terms of vacancy rates right now. Um, so while it's important, I do think that um, that bigger indicator of where we are for our overall residential units saying we still need to add a lot in terms of inventory. Right. And as we mentioned, this is all kind of a, a moving target and mortgage rates have been rising fast lately. Mm -hmm. As as those mortgage rates rise, do you think that will have much impact on the housing supply situation in Vermont? What are you what are you seeing so far? Yeah. So the um kind of the old benchmark used in mortgage lending is every time the interest rates go up a percent that a buyer loses about 10% of their buying power. So if our median home, uh, new home in, in the state, let's just say we're $400,000, know, that means that that interest rate going up, um, if, if all homes were $400,000, somebody who may have been able to afford that yesterday could only afford a home that was $360,000. I do think it's important, but I want to say that for a long time, our, our nation's invested a lot in demand side economics when it comes to home ownership, Right which is we've provided subsidy programs for uh, home buyers in the form of down payment assistance, access to preferential bond programs, and then the government sponsored entities like um, Fannie Mae and uh, Ginnie Mae, and also USDA Rural Development and FHA have put out programs that give borrowers at certain income levels um, preferential interest rates, maybe less down payment requirements, et cetera. So we've invested a lot in that area to equip buyers to participate in the market. So I do think the interest rate is impactful and it's it's one of those exacerbating impacts to me right now though. I don't know that it's gonna have a substantial significant immediate impact on potential home buyers in the state because they were already having such a difficult time because of the inventory issue, actually getting successful bids on homes. Um, you know, the local example I like to give is a friend of mine purchased a home just down the street from me in 2017. Um, she purchased it for about $280,000 when she consulted with a realtor, excuse me, uh, $180,000 when she consulted with a realtor, uh, what she should put that on the market for um, just three or four years later, uh, the number was uh, around 265, 270 that she should put on the market for. She received 32 bids over asking price and accepted a cash offer at 330. Um, so that's just indicative of 
what that environment looks like. And for many of those government-sponsored loans, um, you're also dealing with um, maybe slower mechanics that can sometimes put those borrowers at either a real or perceived disadvantage when it comes to people selling a home. Um, that's discriminatory, but that's a reality that we see planning, playing out in the marketplace. So I'm concerned about interest rates, but I'll go back and say again, I think inventory and the availability of homes um, to purchase has been our increased um, focus. And we hope that even on the federal side of policy, that that continues to get more attention, um, not just equipping people to participate in a market that's not that's not working for the for the um, average income American, uh, but prepare them uh, with the availability of stock to purchase and the options and opportunities in their community. That's an important point. And uh, to your point about the, the cash offers, we've talked to so many would-be buyers across the country who um, have been beaten out time and time again by uh, cash offers, um, making things particularly tough on those relying on uh, perhaps VA or FHA loans. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to talk about some other potential solutions here. I know the Vermont Housing Finance Agency is launching a new pilot program that's designed to encourage construction of moderately priced homes. Can you talk about how that will work and what impact you're hoping it might have? Sure. Yeah, so um, our program is called the Missing Middle Income uh, Development Program. It's focused on producing uh, owner-occupied homes for households earning at or below 120% of the area media income. And for a lot of Vermont, that means our sales prices are gonna be somewhere in the mid threes, depending on the location, so mid 300,000s. Some of those homes will also get bought down lower using other resources to provide things, to um, hit lower target area media incomes as well. Um, And we'll be doing um, about a third of the homes as uh, in shared equity or perpetual permanent affordability models too. Um, What's really exciting about that is um, we've structured it around the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act um, proposal that's a federal proposal um, that allows uh, builders and developers to get subsidies up to 35% of the development costs um, for the construction of a home. So we've closely followed that in hopes that that federal proposal continues to get good legs and that really our state's running a a state-funded program that looks very similar to that so that um, if the federal government does move forward um, with that policy enactment that um, we're already running in that direction. And what what we really looked at and talked to builders about is the first problem they run into is right now, um, when they build a home, the appraised cost that comes back isn't anywhere close to what it costs them to build it in some cases. So we focused on that difference between what it costs to build a home and what it's actually worth, which is what we call the value gap. Um, and we provide a subsidy to help bridge that gap. Um, we have restrictions to ensure the homes are modest. So we're not talking about um, you know elaborate mansions with um, incredibly fine finishes. We're looking at building um, good, moderate um, sized homes with a, a reasonable number of bedrooms for Vermont individuals and families. Um, and then after that, what we found though is in an environment where um, purchase prices have gone so high, then the appraised values are also coming in out of reach, even for moderate income um, home buyers. So that program will also step in and further push down the price of the home potentially to um, reach again those target area media incomes. 
of, of 120 because a lot of the homes even that are being built that are very moderately sized and finished um, won't serve that population. So we're really excited about it. Um, the, the subsidy that goes into those homes will stay with the home in the future and continue to uh, allow that home to be offered below market price. Very excited about that opportunity and hope it's a, a step and maybe even a signal on a national level that those types of investments can work well um, and that we as a country can can focus some resources on the supply side of single family development and home ownership development. And builders who are rehabilitating older homes can also participate in this program. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. What we hear a lot from our banking partners is there they um, are, are I'll say brought homes by potential median income buyers that they can't finance that don't meet guidelines for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, or other types of programs because of various condition issues. Going back to that housing stock being median aged of 1974, we have an old housing stock that needs some love and needs some work. Um, so builders can actually acquire those homes, rehab them, and the subsidy can help with that rehabilitation, again, if they're able to sell the home for that, that targeted, um, targeted income. And do you have a sense of uh, what sort of interest there is so far from builders? Yeah, so the state funded um, this program at $15 million. Um, if I had to put together every project proposal we've seen so far um, that looks that looks reasonable, that's more than just a drawing on a cocktail napkin, um, I would guesstimate that we probably have about $9 million in the pipeline already. And it's ARPA funded, so the funds need to be committed by 20 or commit, we're, we're hoping homes will be finished by 2025. So we've actually got a couple of years to administer this and I would be shocked if we make it through next year in terms of available funding. So speaking to the, um, the second homes issue, we have a question from an audience member, Richard, who asks, um, what would the effect be if the federal tax law was changed to eliminate deductions related to second homes? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the mechanisms to, I'll say, activate um, second homes is, is a hot topic right now. Um, I would actually encourage people to maybe look at some measures that have been used in Seoul, South Korea, and some other areas of um, South Korea where they've battled that same issue and trying to create homes and be sure that people weren't holding second homes. I know Canada's also been taking some some steps in that um, direction. And um, what I would what I would just say is I think that it's probably going to have to be enacted first on a state level, um, and there's going to be need to be state support for that. And that has been a difficult rail to touch, I think, for a lot of states that rely on tourism and that that's been ingrained and um, encouraged so much in the past. Um, there's a, a fierce um, love and appreciation for people's land rights um, in, in our state included. So I think it's been a difficult topic to even breach at the state level. Um, but I do think that those types of measures are really interesting and we should be talking about that for states that have a high level of second homes, which Northern New England is at the top of that list. Mm -hmm. So some Vermont towns are also revising their bylaws to um, increase density in the core downtown areas. And in some cases, they're trying to balance that by reducing density or, you know, increasing the minimum lot sizes in their more rural areas. How effective has that been? And can you talk about that balancing act a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, 
so I was the mayor of a city um, in, in Vermont that went through that process of updating our zoning. And, and just to say, again, I was born in 1982 um, and I found that the zoning that we had on our books was, was six years um, older than I was uh, when I got there. It hadn't been touched any kind of substantial measure since then. But all of that zoning was designed off of our state's um, development philosophy, which is Vermont's going to uh, have a historic settlement pattern that persists largely of compact villages and urban centers separated by rural countryside. And that's actually in statute over and over and over again in our state. Um, and what the state has done really well in our agency of commerce and community development is put carrots in communities to continue to build out via designated zoning programs that largely give you benefits um, to applying for infrastructure money for housing dollars. Our qualified allocation plan is an example incentivizes and gives points or check marks to projects who are in designated downtowns meet these state zoning uh, goals of having those those centers those what we think of as being potential economic hubs and what we've seen the state do the planning office do more recently is extend out with more i call them auxiliary or off branch um, uh, designated areas where, again, you're saying it's not just the core downtown, it's also now the main arteries of the communities that can get access to additional funding if they meet certain, certain planning requirements, which include looking at density. So I would just say that I think communities are making a good faith effort, and we've seen a huge rush and increase in the number of communities getting bylaw update grants, and more and more funding put into that from the legislature. It's been it's been recognized that this is a that the uh, zoning is a huge problem. I think we have more work to do in our downtowns and in our um, areas where we do have some density and some existing infrastructure before we need to be too worried um, about how far out that development goes. So if we can we can hit that infill pieces before that. It's a tricky um, discussion. Uh, Vermont's a, a Dillon's rule state where um, you know. Towns only have the power expressly conveyed by the state. And we're now seeing pressure from the federal government in, in the most recent housing plan um, in the form of incentives for communities to um, really work on their zoning issues um, and remove a lot of those barriers that are preventing housing from coming to reality. So I think we've got more work to do on those compact downtowns before we worry too much about the rural areas. Do you think there's still a lot of nimbyism holding back uh, you know, those, those changes in, in the downtowns. I do. Yes. Yeah. It's, um, you know, housing is never for the sake of housing, right? We don't build housing just to see more housing and units pop up. We build housing for what it brings to a community, for the ability for it to support diversity, for it to support um, employment in the area, to bring vibrancy um, to a community. And I think where we've fallen down a bit, maybe in our state, is we've put so much pressure on our quote unquote historic character and the preservation of things looking and feeling the way that they were. You know, I would argue that the last thing you can tell by walking through a town um, and looking at buildings is what its quote unquote character is. That's a complex sort of attitude um, that exists in the communities. And so I think we've got work to do in Vermont to recognize that, that change can occur and change and housing can be part of that change. And it's gonna have a net benefit to the total experience of living in those communities. And that's really exciting. Um, but to come out and oppose a single development 
um, and and have uh, public tools for participation that allows that, um, we've got to work on that. I understand Vermont has had some success converting not only empty commercial space, uh, but also things like hotels, schools, college dorms, mm -hmm. and giving those buildings a new life as residential units. Um, how big an impact has that had? And is that something you'd like to see more of? Yeah, well, I mentioned our our kind of his our love for historic buildings and preservation of them. I think we've got a really good history in our state of what I call just adaptive reuse of structures. Right, we're pretty good at looking at a historic building and finding okay, what's what is this building's next role in our community? And there's no better um, example of that in my mind than the community I live in, uh, where we've taken historic uh, woolen mills and turned them largely into housing. Um, those are exciting types of projects that that help transition those big historic buildings into future use that's going to serve the community for years to come. Now we're seeing some other social pressures, right, where um, there's some school consolidation occurring and we're ending up with large school buildings. Um, and in some cases, we've been able, three recent cases, we've been able to convert old school buildings um, into housing. Um, we've seen churches also consolidating and church land and actual buildings be discussed and um, targeted for housing. And I think the best example that um, our state's been a leader on is conversion of hotels, right? So hotels that um, were underperforming as an economic asset, but when we needed rapid housing um, during the pandemic, when we needed people to have homes to be safe, um, and, and that really did save lives. We very quickly purchased a number of hotels and are continually rehabbing and, and pushing them towards uh, structures that look good and feel good as permanent housing for long term for people. Um, and we've done some incredible things with some of those buildings. It's been exciting. So adaptive reuse is going to be a big part of things going forward. And you've referred uh I think briefly to this White House Housing Supply mm -hmm. Action Plan that was released last month. Um, are, are there particular elements of that that you think would would really work well or, or not work in Vermont? Yeah. Well, so th I think um, three things really stand out. The first is we, we've talked a lot about zoning and land use regulation and the federal government kind of getting into that game of saying the resources you receive could be contingent or dependent upon your community's activities around updating zoning and land use um, regulations. That's a big deal. And it's a big signal to send. And I think communities across the country should be listening to that because the state has been trying to do that for a number of years, but the stick is only so long and so heavy. Um, and, it, and the carrots are only um, so many at the state level that having the federal government send that same message, I think is really critical. So really applaud the White House on that. The second one that probably doesn't get as much coverage is um, there are uh, somewhere around 17 to 20 million individuals and families living in manufactured homes across the country. It's a huge part of our housing stock, and it's actually the largest NOAA in the country, naturally occurring affordable housing, meaning most of these communities and homes don't have su public subsidies associated with them, but they're providing affordable housing. Um, investments in manufactured home communities um, infrastructure and, and wastewater particularly is going to be critical because in a lot of cases, these communities popped up in areas that today we may not designate as great places to site housing. Uh, that's just a reality, but they're critical. Um, and when you're talking about that many homes 
we can't have those communities deteriorating. Um, and it's both an environmental and economic justice issue. So I really applaud the White House for taking a stand on that. And then I think there's a lot of attention being paid to incremental development tools. Um, so it's uh, nod towards ADUs and opportunities for people to add accessory dwelling units, uh, but also uh, mother-in-law apartments and, and those types of measures to allow for infill. Um, those are really critical items for communities to have. And in a lot of cases, those are the first steps in zoning regulations that communities take towards opening up a little bit and saying like, hey, it's not going to end the world if your neighbor has a small accessory dwelling unit in their backyard and it's providing a home for somebody else and probably financial sustainability for your neighbor too. Um, and then just um, we're fans of perpetual affordability in Vermont. It's important when we make investments as much as possible. And I really appreciated um, the White House's comments in regards to investment in the combination of public housing, but also nonprofit stewardship housing, um, so that when we make public investments in housing, that we're also ensuring that those are going to be investments um, for the long term. And there are lots of private developers that do that, too, and applaud their work in that space. Uh, but that was that was cool to see. Well, it will be so interesting to follow how uh, all these ideas unfold. Um, that's all the time that we have for today, but thank you so much for being here, Seth. We hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Baron Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rublin and Adam Cecil, founder of Gravity Capital Management, will discuss the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks. Thank you again for listening today. Stay safe and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.